0: Hey everyone, you're listening to the Climbing Advocate Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Horgan. This show brings you advocates from across the country to speak about their experiences and advocacy work that happens beyond the crag. This includes climbing advocates that work on a local scale, policy professionals, athletes, and all others in between that have a deep love for the climbing environment. My aim is to connect more climbers to the work that these advocates do and inspire everyone that no matter how big or small, they have an opportunity to get involved and do their part. This show is brought to you in partnership with Access Fund. For nearly 30 years, Access Fund has been the organization that has kept our beloved climbing resources conserved and cared for. From stewardship to influencing climbing policy and educating current and new climbers on the best responsible behavior, Access Fund is on it. As they say, no crag is too big or too small to not have its interests represented. Support Access Fund by visiting accessfund.org, and by supporting your local climbing organization. The show is also supported by Gnarly Nutrition. We want to thank Gnarly Nutrition for being a supporter of Access Fund and the Climbing Advocate podcast. Gnarly Nutrition and its employees recognize that it is a privilege to visit and recreate in outdoor spaces. They believe that these spaces should be protected and safe for all to recreate in. Gnarly Nutrition. Want more. Do more. Be more. Hey everyone, welcome to the latest installment of the Climbing Advocate Podcast, episode number 46, a conversation with Dr. James Maples. James is a professor of sociology at Eastern Kentucky University and author of the newly released book that documents the history of climbing in the Red River Gorge, fittingly entitled, Rock Climbing in Kentucky's Red River Gorge, An Oral History of Community, Resources, and Tourism. James and I wasted no time and jumped right into things talking about some of the old history of the Red and some of the original climbers that occupied the area back in the 1960s. We then backed things up just a little bit so we could learn a bit more about James himself. Although he is not a climber, he's very passionate about music and loves to spend time hiking around the Red and watching the climbers on those beautiful golden sandstone cliffs that are so ubiquitous in the Red. Despite not being a climber, he has a great affinity for the climbing community. So much so, he literally wrote the book on climbing in the red. His book is not a guidebook, however, like the one you would use to plan your day at the crag, but one that documents the history of climbing in the red dating back to the 60s and the critical events that have happened over the years that have shaped the red into what we know it as today. I could have easily have had him on the the show all day to talk about each chapter in his book, but we run through a few select events that have occurred there over the years that have had a major influence on climbing there. The story of the Red is so interesting, and I think James absolutely nails it in the book. It's linked up in the show notes if you'd like to get yourself a copy, and I'd highly recommend that you do. In addition to writing this book, James has also helped conduct multiple economic impact studies at the Red and at other major climbing areas around the country. We dig into the nuts and bolts of what an economic impact study is and the positive impact climbing has had on rural communities like those around the Red. I'll let James fill you in on all those details, but basically what they found is that climbers bring millions of dollars to local communities and they're not the dirtbags that many locals thought they were at one time. So we got that going for us, which is nice. I hope some of you out there caught that Caddyshack reference there. Anyway, if, if all that was not enough, James, along with some other colleagues, did a climbing specific Leave No Trace study in the New River Gorge in West Virginia, kind of taking on that traditional Leave No Trace model, but putting a climbing specific lens to it to see how much climbers actually know about, know about Leave No Trace and if they actually apply it while they're climbing. Again, I'll let James fill you in on all those details, but his take-home message with this one is to always pack out your teepee. It can often be confusing as to whether you need to or not, depending on what kind of environment you might be in, whether you're in the alpine, in the desert, and so on, but he says, just do it no matter where you are. So if you learned nothing else from this episode, just remember to pack out the teepee, all right? All right, it is my pleasure to introduce you to Dr. James Maples. Enjoy. That seemed to be kind of a, not a common theme, but you mentioned that multiple times in your book, just people coming from their, for their postdoc or, or, ex, you know, extended studies. And then they find themselves climbing in the red and at any time in between classes or, or studying or working, it seems like yeah, to be, yeah, that was happening multiple with multiple people.
1: Yeah, it's really perfect, too, because, you know, Lexington's a really close shot to the Red River Gorge. And uh, I mean, even that early climbing history, you know, if we go back with the Cumberland climbers, there was so many cases where, you know, those early climbers weren't necessarily people that were like what we would think of as climbers today. They were sort of naturalists and environmentalists who were interested in seeing the red and experiencing its wild state. Uh, And a lot of them were affiliated with the University of Kentucky. Um, definitely including uh, Dieter Britz, Ron Stokely, and so forth. They all were kind of students at UK or working on degrees. There was a couple of cases where there may even have been some professors. Um, You know, Bob Stokes comes to mind. Uh, But yeah, it's it's really cool that the University of Kentucky actually has such a cool tie to the Reds. Very, very early climbing history. And even before it's spelunking history.
0: Yeah, spelunking. And that's another thing you talk about in the book a lot is the caving and the kind of the, the intersection or crossing between the two and some bolts that you might find in the rock are like, oh, that was used for caving, not necessarily for climbing and just a completely different yeah environment than what we see today.
1: Yeah, I got to have a great conversation with a spelunker um, who really explained, you know, why those bolts were so important. Uh, you know, there's not really caves in the Red River Gorge proper. You don't really see that. When, when we think of caves in Kentucky, we always think of mammoth, but that's a very different structure. Um, with the red, it's really just not something that you find. Um So a lot of the climbers in this area were really using those bolts and stuff like that to practice, um, you know, because they didn't want to, like, try to learn to do some of these techniques underground in the dark, you know, maybe even under, like, catastrophic situations where, like, a light source has failed or something like that. They wanted to do it above ground in the sunshine so everybody could see what you're doing. And, uh, you know, the ramifications of falling, too, from one of those bolts was going to be far less than what it would be underground. Uh, and that's where we probably end up with some of those earliest climbing routes. You know, it's it's hard to debate. It's hard to settle on which climbing route is the first in the Red River Gorge, because if you include those caving routes, you've got several that are sort of pre-1969. Uh, cavers route at Tower Rock is a great example of that. It's got a section that they could kind of shimmy up that was very similar to what you would do uh, in a spelunking situation. Um, and then there's a couple of those other bolts in that area, um, you know, as well that were probably used for just basically practicing techniques. Um, so yeah, but like the Cumberland climbers, now they started officially, uh, I think it was November, December uh, 1969, but it was in the fall of 69. And they kind of went on a, a, a spree of sort of a couple of really early routes. Uh, Stokes Ludford route comes up as uh, one of the early ones that was very well documented. Um, there was a, a report that was published, uh, probably in like Sierra Club magazine or something like that, as well, um, talking about so the origins of that route. And I've also got a YouTube video up that kind of talks about that history. Uh, I always think it's really cool because, like Ron Stokely and Dieter Britz, were the people who put up the route. And uh, it was so funny because, like, talking to them basically 50 years after the fact, the very first thing that both of them independently bring up is how many uh, copperheads there were at the base of that route. Apparently, they were just everywhere. <laughs>
0: That's terrifying. <laughs> so it's, both those guys are still around.
1: They are, yeah. Um, you know, they're getting up there in years, uh, but they are both uh, doing really well. You know, the funny thing about this book, when I first started working on it, All the local climbers, they didn't even know who Dieter Britz was. He's listed in the early guidebooks, for some reason, as D. Britz. Um, Mm -hmm. And nobody really knows why he wasn't going by D at the time. Uh, Maybe it was they didn't know how to spell his name or something like that. It could have even been because that's how he was listed in like some of the early Cumberland climber stuff. We don't really know. Uh, But I ended up finding Ron quite by accident. His last name is spelled uniquely, and I typed it in incorrectly um, on a, just a very last attempt to find him and ended up finding a Ron Stokely that was like doing a presentation at an REI in Colorado. And I was just like, I don't know, let's long shot this and just see. And sure enough, like I sent the email and I feel like it was like 30 minutes later, I get a call on my office phone from Colorado and I'm like, Whoa, that's okay. And sure enough, it was, it was wrong. And it was funny too, because he was like, it's so random, but he was logging into the email that I had sent an email to, to basically like get everything out of it that he needed because he wasn't going to use that email anymore. Mm-hmm. And so like, I just, you know, if I'd waited till like the next morning, I might not have gotten in touch with them. And wow. I kind of hit in a block uh, with, um, you know, trying to establish this really early history Because, I mean, you know, you get to this point in the 70s and 60s, where like, you know, they just sort of refer to it as like a sentence and like, oh, yeah, and there were some earlier climbers. uh, And, you know, when they're talking about it in the later guidebooks. And so it was just this very unknown forgotten history. And Ron unlocked so much of the stuff uh, that's in the early part of the book and sort of gave me the names that I needed to find the other people that had the information that we needed. Um, so I was glad that it all worked out. And he was also, it's like, I was like, Hey, who is D Brits? And he's like, Oh, Dieter. Yeah. He's a professor. He's somewhere, you know, and then I cracked down Dieter <laughs> Brits living in Denmark and it just kind of goes from there. So <laughs>
0: it, is, is he Danish or it just happens to live in Denmark now?
1: He's actually lived in lots of countries uh, around the world, and partly um, he was following his, his profession. I think he ended up finding a great professor job there um, and, uh, and settled there. But he's not Danish that I know of.
0: Okay, gotcha. All right. Wow, that's, that's a great story, James. That's very uh, serendipitous, I guess, and just it all came together. It was, it was really, truly meant to be, and this book was meant to be. And you know, it's what I wanted to get into here first. You know, I've read the majority of it. I have, I think, two chapters left. I was pushing really hard to get the whole thing done before we chatted today, but still got some of those uh, modern, more modern, uh, you know, more recent chapters to to finish up. But I've gotten a good glimpse at the history dating back to the Cumberland Climbers and the uh, Red River Dam that was proposed early on in the '60s, and I want to get into all that and, and highlight some of those important uh historical events that helped shape the red to what it is today. But I always I I, I want to start with you. I want to learn a little bit about yourself. I'm I'm so excited to have you on the show today to chat about the Red River Gorge, you know, a place that is near and dear to your heart and talk about it in a different light a little bit, you know, talking about this more historical piece and, you know, some of your economic work that you've done and the studies that you've done and the reds I think Probably the most, probably the most highlighted area on this podcast. I've had two other conversations <laughs> solely about the Red uh, in the la- over the last few years. I had Ashley Milanich on back in 2019, uh, who was the former executive director of the Red River Gorge Climbers Coalition. I had her on right after I made my first trip to the Red back in May of 2019, nice. and then I had Curtis and Audrey Del Geyer on. Um, Gail Dyer on uh, to talk about stewardship that was last year but now we're here to talk about some of the nitty-gritty history of the Red River Gorge and yeah again the part you have played now in studying the economics of the area so before we jump into all that stuff I can keep you on here all day I want to a bit more about yourself um where are you based and are you Kentucky native
1: I am not I'm actually uh was raised in East Tennessee um Blount County um And my family is all from Gatlinburg, Pigeon Forge, that area. I always Mm -hmm. like to joke that like each generation rolled a little further down into the foothills and that's where I ended up as a kid. (laughs) Um, But I got I was really lucky that I got to grow up on a a family farm and, uh, you know, just sort of being a holler with family and have amazing experiences uh, in the woods Uh, And in the nearby rock quarry, and uh, it was a really great experience. Um, But I moved to Kentucky, I think it's about eight years ago now, um, when I took a position here at Eastern Kentucky University as as a professor of sociology. Um, and then in recent years, and this is entirely because of the work we've been doing for climbing, uh, EKU was kind of to, to provide the funds to set up um, a, a research division uh, called the Division of Regional Economic Assessment and Modeling, or DREAM. Uh, and by the way, my wife came up with that name, which I think is super awesome. It's very clever. Um, yeah, DREAM. What a, what a great you know abbreviation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but th- their work has been largely to, you know, continue this process of doing economic impact studies on rock climbing. Um, you know, and since founding Dream, uh, we've worked with several locations to do economic impact studies. We've got uh, three more in progress, possibly a fourth one in the spring. Uh, so it's been really busy work, but I'm really glad to do it. I, I love supporting the climbing community, uh, trying to learn more about climbers because. You know, honestly, there's a lot of stuff that we really don't know about climbers. There's things that, you know, climbers have long assumed, um, but we really needed some research to kind of settle up some of those things and also to think too about really important stuff like impacts um, and not just economic, but the environmental end of things. We've got to find ways to make sure that these crags can be open 20 years from now. Uh, you know, so that like, you know, kids that are just now being born, will be able to go climb on these amazing routes in the red river gorge. And, you know, that's going to largely be on the backs of, uh, local climbing organizations, uh, but also the climbers themselves. Um, but I'm sure we can get into that later.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, being a non climber yourself, we talked, you know, before we started recording, you, you talked about like, you know, your, uh, History or your background of of music, and you know, you're really interested in that. But yeah, from my understanding, you're you're not a climber yourself. So what what draws you to to the sport and the people who participate in it?
1: Well, I really love uh, first off that I had an opportunity to link um, my interests in research with being able to help a community who is interested in supporting research um, and also willing to take this brand new assistant professor under their wing. Um, you know, even though I'm not a climber, I do love to hike. And, uh, one of my favorite things, honestly, is to go through the Red River Gorge and just go to the crags and watch people climb. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there's nothing better than hitting rough trail and taking a little detour to left flank and military wall and just watch folks do these just amazing things. Um, and I, I just really appreciate that. I really appreciate that the climbing community was, was, willing to to kind of take care of me and, uh, you know, accept me, I guess, as one of their own, um, even though I've got a pretty wicked fear of heights. So <laughs>
0: <laughs> have you tied into a rope at any point?
1: I have. It was a total and utter failure. Um, so everyone <laughs> just decided I should just stay back at the office. I was probably better there. It was just going to hurt myself. Um, but uh, and I'm content with that, too. It's a lot more fun to watch. Um, for me, I really enjoy it. Um, my daughter does go climbing. She recently finished her first five, eight, uh, at age 11. So we're pretty All stoked right. about that. And I appreciate that the, you know, climbers in the red have been able to, to support her doing that.
0: Very cool. Yeah. It's a supportive group for sure. So when did you get connected with the access fund? I feel, you know, i we're both going to be in. I'm really excited to meet you in person so I'll be in Chattanooga here in a few weeks. Um, and yeah. I know you'll be doing a presentation there. Um, and I've seen you at other annual conferences. I've, I think this year will be my sixth or seventh. And I feel like I've seen you probably at like three of them or something or two, you know, two, mm-hmm. at least two. Um, so when did you get hooked up with them?
1: I think it was around 2014. Um, I ended up talking with folks from the Red River Gorge Climbers Coalition about their interest in doing an economic impact study. It may have even been in 2013. Um, and uh, Rick Boss, one of the presidents of the Red River Gorge Commerce Coalition in the past, also happens to be my brother-in-law. And oh. he and I had chatted in the past about, you know, climbers really need to be able to, you know, document these economic expenditures. Um, but they hadn't really found anyone who was interested in, I, I guess, doing that work. Um, and doing it affordably is the other part of it. Um, so mm-hmm. around 2014, I ended up talking with the coalition. And uh, that's when uh, Zach Huey would have been brought into the conversation. And, uh, you know, Access Fund was such an important part of making that first study happen. Um, there was a lot of, you know, reasons that that study needed to be done Um You know, not least of which to to, uh, you know, finally estimate climbers expenditures in that area, but to also really get some great demographic data on who climbers were, Uh, you know, going back into climbing history uh, for the Red River Gorge climbers they they kind of had a bad name amongst locals. And it was because of some things that had happened back in the, the late 60s, early 70s. Um, but we kind of saw that the generations from back then had just said, yeah, these climbers are bad people. They're outsiders. We don't want them here. And that kind of got carried forward. But we were also seeing in, you know, more recent years and especially today, that climbers and local residents were starting to interact. You know, climbers were hanging out at the same places as some of like the ATV community in places like Lee County. And it was a really a chance for them to start getting to know each other. And I'm really glad that Access Fun and the coalition could help make that happen.
0: Gotcha. So when you talk about the long assumed stigmas, perhaps, about climbers, that's what you're referring to bad people, maybe dirty outsiders, just not really meshing with the people who, who live there.
1: Yeah, I always got a kick out of that because uh, I would talk to older members in the community and they'd be like, oh, climbers, you know, they're horrible people. They're dirt bags. <laughs> and uh, I would tell climbers, be like, yeah, the locals said you were dirt bags. And they were like, oh, that's awesome. I'm so yeah. glad they were dirt bags. <laughs> and I'm like, well, not that kind of dirt bag. They mean like a very different and they're like, oh, okay. But it was funny because I started seeing that it was really the older generations, uh, folks that had been around in the 60s and 70s and kind of knew about the stuff that had happened then and kind of established a very particular perspective that climbers were outsiders, Um, you know, even though they've now been in the Red River Gorge for 50 plus years, depending on how you want to define climbing. And uh, they had this very sort of negative perspective about them um, that honestly didn't really hold water. Uh, you know, there were stories like all oh, the climbers, they just go out and get drunk and climb and have accidents And I'm like, you know, I've been to all these crags and like, I can't think of a single time I've seen climbers, you know, uh, drinking alcohol at the crag, much less, you know, climbing intoxicated. That's, you know, counterintuitive to them accomplishing what they're trying to do. Um, and so it, it was fun to start to kind of challenge some of those ideas by establishing a demographic of climbers with our economic impact studies. I think one of the big exciting things that came out of that and every single climbing study that we've done since then is that climbers are very well educated. And Mm -hmm. not surprisingly, because of that education, they've got high incomes. They're very interested in supporting local residents, local businesses and more. So they ended up being almost an ideal uh, demographic for local businesses Um, I'm really excited to see That's something that's starting to change minds. Um, And even in the study, too, which I know we'll talk about later, but we've seen, um, you know, some changes in how local businesses approach climbers. And I think that's been fun.
0: Great, great! I'm really excited to dive into that some more. So let's, yeah, let's put a pin in that for a moment and um, jump into your book. I really want to start off with um, with what you have put together here. You have literally wrote in the written the book on the history of climbing in the red. This is not a guidebook. I just want to put that out there. Definitely not a guidebook, but rather a book that. Does talk about a lot about the development that has happened in the red over the years, and also paints such a beautiful picture of the finer details of this development and the hurdles that climbers have faced there during this time, yeah, you know, dating back fifty, you know, fifty plus years, I guess. So I did my best to try to read the entire thing, like I said before we chatted today, but it's still got a little bit left. Um, but it's been such a pleasure to read, and I wish every major climbing area in the country had a book like this written about it it's just you know I, I live many many miles away from the red i've been there one time and and learning about this uh, history and back and all these backstories to understand what it is today has been just yeah really enjoyable for me so thanks for writing it i am going to you know link it up in the show notes make sure every, everyone has the opportunity to uh to buy it and support you and, and learn some more about it so when did you when did you decide that you wanted to to write this book what was the impetus for for this project
1: Yeah, there was actually a couple of moments, um, and it's really only in being able to look back after the process is completed that I've realized them. One of them actually starts long, long before I was even a professor. Um, I was sitting at my brother-in-law's house, and he had all these Red River Gorge climbing guides and New River Gorge guides and all these sort of climbing magazines and stuff like that. And I remember there was one random Sunday afternoon or something where um, I ended up kind of like stuck at his house while I was waiting for, you know, something else with my wife to, to happen. And I was just sitting there reading the guides and flipping through them. And it was the third edition of the Ray Ellington guide for the Red River Gorge that really caught my attention because first off. It was just gorgeous seeing all these pictures and, you know, trying to understand like how climbers, which I didn't really understand anything about them at the time, were climbing these just amazing, beautiful spaces. Um, And I also remember, too, in reading the introduction that it seemed like there was all these great stories about, you know, route namings and like these really important people in the history of climbing there. Um, But there really wasn't a full depiction of the history. It just sort of like, you know, there was this other stuff that happened, you know, in the 60s and 70s. um, But like no one really knew what it was. They were just kind of like these early climbers that, you know, were just sort of almost forgotten history at that point. And that stuck with me. Um, you know, flash forward uh quite a few years and I'm working on the economic impact study. And I was doing a presentation and I was jokingly talking about some of these great stories that I had heard about the Red River Gorge from some of the climbers that I had spoken with. I was starting to kind of meet a few of those early historical figures and get to know them. And I was just like, wow, somebody should, you know, write a book about this. Like these stories are amazing. And I was just like, oh, maybe maybe I could do that. <laughs> that's me. <laughs> yeah, I've got to apply for tenure pretty soon. So maybe that's something I could do, right? Yeah. Um, and as I kind of just started getting into the early parts of trying to just sketch out that history, I realized it was a very complicated story to tell. And I was going to need to really get a lot of voices involved. I I can't even remember how many interviews I ended up doing at this point, but it really involved getting so many different people from different points in history, many of them honestly tracking them down, uh, which was kind of half the fun trying to find all these folks and, you know, get them on the phone or in a Zoom room to have a conversation about, um, you know, their experiences and then trying to sort of fact check all of these little pieces of history and then working with the, you know, Forest Service and local historians and more to really kind of start fleshing out that story. You know, somewhere along the line, I realized the story of climbing is certainly about climbers, but it's also the story about how all this amazing stuff happening around them was also part of that story. You know, mm-hmm. we can't understand the Red River Gorge without understanding that there was a Red River Dam. We can't understand the Red River Gorge without understanding, you know, the severe poverty in this region. It's flooding history. Um, you know, it's sort of often negative experiences with tourism. Um, and extractive economies and environmental sacrifice zones. You know, we can't understand climbing without putting all those pieces together. And goodness, we can't forget, you know, this is also the history of public lands that we're talking about for much of the early Reds history. So there was a lot of pieces, um, but it was such a satisfying experience trying to draw all those pieces together and make a, a, a really, you know, cohesive uh, and as full as I could possibly make it story. Um, all in all, it was about five years work.
0: When I've talked to guidebook authors, they, you know it's, it's a it's a labor of love. It was a fun process, but at the end of it, they're just like, oh my God, I'm so glad it's over with. Did you have that, <laughs> did you have that kind of same sense of relief in a way?
1: You know, I think my biggest problem was cool things kept happening in the red. And um, I kept asking my editor, I'm like, no, I've got to write about this. This just happened. <laughs> you know, even as I'm finishing up the book on uh, the Red River Gorge, there's conversations about putting in a destination resort. And I'm like, I'm on the phone with my editor. And I'm like, I need more time. I have to write about this, you know, and she's like, we have to stop. Like now is the right. time you've said everything that you can possibly say. Uh, We got to get this one, you know, out there. Um, And so I really appreciated uh, the team at West Virginia University Press um, working with me, a first time author who also just wanted to capture every last detail. Um, And so it's kind of cool because the book closes off. Um, you know, even as a whole bunch of amazing things are starting to happen in the Red River Gorge, you know, we've got the uh, protection of the motherload. Uh, we've got you know conversations about working with the Forest Service on the new climbing management guide, and you know, just all these amazing things that are happening in the climbing community. But then also, we have you know, in the shadow of this, uh, this new destination resort that has to be considered as something that could really change the face of how we understand uh, outdoor recreation in the Red River Gorge. So. It Mm -hmm. kind of leaves on a bit of a cliffhanger, but I will say for folks who are part of local climbing organizations and even folks with Access Fund, that last chapter, it's really written with you in mind. It's written taking this 50 years of history, finding all these specific case studies of where climbers in the red did things really well and where they did things really horribly. And what we as new LCOs, existing LCOs, as the uh, you know uh, National Climbing Organization with Access Fund, what we can learn from that so we don't have to reinvent the wheel. And thankfully, the Red River Gorge climbers were so willing to you know, provide their stories and give so many examples that we can learn from. I think that's probably going to be um, one of the most important parts of the book going forward is it's it's a learning guide. It gives us a chance to figure out where things went terribly wrong in the past for another group of climbers. And now we don't have to make those same mistakes.
0: Wow. Yeah, I love. Uh, yeah, I haven't gotten to that chapter yet. And I'm excited to, uh, to wrap it up here, hopefully this week. And yeah, it's, it's really cool that you, that you closed with that of leaving people with with what they can move forward with. And I didn't really think about the book in, in that light as kind of like this um, handbook, I guess, in a way of previous experiences and where things went wrong, where things went right. And, you know, use that as a guide to, to move forward and help direct missions and, and, object- and management objectives for future LCOs, not even in... Red River Gorge necessarily, but for anywhere around the country.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's my my big hope for the book is that folks can can put it to use as sort of a, a learning experience. I, I feel like we can learn so much from history. And uh, I think that was one of the, the really cool things about it is I feel like I learned a ton about, you know, being an advocate for climbing uh, just based on studying the Red's history. It was uh, such an exciting place and, you know, some controversy happened, uh, you know, in spots. Um, so I don't know, it's it's a cool learning experience, but we don't have to make those same mistakes anymore because, you know, now we know. Plus, we've got the great precedent of how climbers can work with public lands. I think that's been one of the great endearing stories, too, that's come out of the Red River Gorges. We see what happens when things go well and we see what happens when they aren't going well.
0: Yep, Absolutely. When does your book tour start? Are you hitting, hitting the road or across <laughs> <So> the country? <laughs> I, I
1: wish. Um, I did my very first uh, book signing actually at Rocktoberfest uh, here in the Red All River right. Gorge. And uh, it was great to meet a lot of people. Um, it was funny because, uh, you know, there were people that didn't exactly know what to do with my book. They would be like, so it's not a guidebook, but it's like on the Red River Gorge. And I'm like, yeah, it's the oral history of the entire Reds, you know, climbing history. And they're like... But it's a guidebook. And I'm like, no, no. It's I mean, it's got the history of guides, <laughs> but like you're not gonna be able to like, you know, find like crag specific. Well, I mean, you kind of can actually because, You can. You totally can. Uh, <laughs> some of the funny things is, you know, I most people don't have access to those early climbing guides. And, you know, especially, you know, talking about like Frank Beckard's guide, uh, Becker's guide in 1974. I go through and really document like the crags and the routes that he was talking about. Some of those routes kind of ended up fading away some would be renamed some have been closed forever um you know but it's it's all about trying to document that early history you can even in a way kind of see how uh the red river gorge develops in stages over time and it expands you know outward from these very specific crags in the red river gorge proper uh down into lee County and so forth so but it's not a guidebook.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, it's not. Yeah, not your traditional guidebook. Yeah, you can go through, look at each wall, pick your route with the grade, with the route description, um, and go climb. However, yeah, you got you got down to some nitty gritty, very specific details that I was so impressed with. Like this wall had this many sport routes and this many trad routes, and these are the people who did them, and this is the year that they did them. I mean, you you really drilled down to get that information. So I just like kind of tip my hat to you for, you know, for putting that effort in to get that level of detail.
1: Uh, I appreciate that. You know, that was kind of fun of the, one of the fun parts is uh, I tried to ask climbers about some of the stories about different routes. And, um, you know, even if it was just learning about like a name that maybe nobody had talked about its origin or, you know, like the creation of specific routes. And I really think that was one of one of the fun parts, too, was getting to hear all these great stories from, you know, these amazing legendary climbers about you know, their experiences as they're like first ascending this route. Um, it was, it was really cool to live vicariously and, you know, honestly be in this red river gorge that was so wildly different from the red. You and I know, um, mm-hmm. you know, this was back when the red river gorge had like tolls that you had to pay, you know, like I think it was 25 or 35 cents or something to get off at the slate exit. You know um, it was just, you know, a very different time and there might be 10 or 15 people out there in the area, uh, you know, instead of like hundreds. So.
0: Right. Yep. Well, we could easily make uh, an entire episode going through each and every chapter of the book and get the cliff notes from each chapter because everything you wrote about is really important, had its influence on how we see the red today as we've talked about you know numerous times already and climbing doesn't live in a vacuum and it's all these external factors yeah. and 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 influences that happens outside of the red property proper excuse me that has influence on it anyway so i picked out a few a select few uh, chapters and important historical moments that i thought were important and interesting for us to discuss today so i'd love to start with the red river dam proposal mm-hmm. from the 60s um, this is one of the first couple chapters in the book. uh, It was a dam that that was being proposed back in the 1960s. And curious if you could share with the listeners what the impetus was for the proposal of this dam in the first place.
1: Yeah, you know, folks who have visited the Red will know that there's water pretty much everywhere. It is just a very wet area. Um, and you won't be surprised that flooding has been a really big issue in a lot of the surrounding counties. I mean, just recently, Betaville was hit with, you know, disastrous downtown flooding where, you know, entire buildings were, you know, largely submerged. Um, we've got a lot of rivers uh, coming through this area and all that water's got to go somewhere. And, you one of the big problems was a flooding that was happening in places like Powell County. Uh, 1962 was a particularly disastrous flood for Clay City. And that and earlier floods really ignited a conversation with the Army Corps and the state of Kentucky um, about what could be done to try to prevent all these floods. Now, you have to understand this was a time where the Red River Gorge was really not something that most people knew about it wasn't even like uh, a conversation point nobody knew about this you know recently named daniel boone national forest um and this amazing red river gorge place it was just all kind of uh, very hush-hush and a mystery and so um they decided that a dam would probably be the best way to approach that creating um a recreational lake in the red river gorge also probably no accident was going to create a big water source for the city of Lexington. Um, there's some sort of historical notes that they sold some of their water rights about the time all of this was going through. So there may have been some connections there. Um, but the people of the Red, you know, they were largely in support of this. They saw this as an opportunity to try to prevent some of the floods, even though there were some real legitimate questions about to what degree the Army Corps plan really would have prevented flooding um and it's also hard to predict exactly what it would have done to the red it would have i i think probably made a large recreational lake you know there might have been some future opportunities for like deep water soloing or something but <laughs> i think it probably would have crushed the climbing community before it started i don't think right. we ever would have seen the sport growth that we saw in the late 80s early 90s um and i think in doing that you know other climbing areas around here might have developed independently, but my sense is that probably if the dam had gone through, it just would have quelled things before they even got started. And you know, it's interesting too because like those earliest climbs uh, in '69, um, you know, the climbers were basically thinking about the fact that you know the red pretty much was going to be gone soon. You can even go to Frank Beckard's 1974 guide, and Frank was writing this book. You know, almost as like trying to take a snapshot of this area. He wanted to remember it before it was gone. And even talking to him 50 years later, he was like, when I was writing that, I was convinced the Red River Gorge was damned uh, or doomed. It was going to be damned. Um, So it's interesting because this also ends up being a kind of a weird point for where climbers get labels as being outsiders. Um, because, uh, what happens is the Sierra club, which was based out of California, I recall at the time ends up raising this red river Gorge dam to be, you know, this national concern. They're like, Hey, this amazing outdoor area is about to be flooded and lost. And the army Corps is just ripping through this process. Um, and no one's saying anything. And they end up working with um, some folks, probably based out of the University of Kentucky, if I had to guess, who established the Cumberland chapter of the Sierra Club. And from that Cumberland chapter comes the Cumberland climbers who, you know, I guess we could describe them as the first local climbing organization in the red. Um, But they also kind of end up becoming sort of the origin story for why climbing in the red even exists.
0: That's a great segue into like the, this next topic of early advocacy. And one of the next chapters was the Cumberland Climbers and the formation of this early LCO. If we had to put a, a you know, a formal, a formality to it, you know, the advocacy started in the red many, many decades ago with this group and well before the Red River Gorge Climbers Coalition was even a thing. So, and they weren't necessarily from what I understand, you know, I've only read through the book once. Uh, um, from what I understand, you know, they weren't, you know, just focused on access and stuff like like we are today, and, and stewardship necessarily. But they had like a big safety component, teaching people how to how to climb safely, and you know, maybe expanded beyond that just a little bit. But do you want to expand a little bit more on those early days of the climbers and what they focused on?
1: Yeah, you know, they got to experience a Red River Gorge that you and I will never get to see, this amazing wild place that, you know, was in many ways a very true wilderness. Um, you know, talking with those early climbers like Ron Stokely and Dieter Britz, um, it was an amazing experience to hear um about this area and just how remote it was and, and how many copperheads there were at every crag, it seems, <laughs> uh, which I've seen my share of, of climbing copperheads over the, the years. Yeah, um, It was exciting because, you know, with the Cumberland Climbers, they were partly an advocate group um, because they were affiliated with the Sierra Club. Um, It was understood that they were generally against the Red River Dam. uh, And I would very much assume that they participated in the early protests. And a lot of that for local residents kind of labeled them as these like undesirable outsiders um, who were coming in to change everything, even though they were people from the University of Kentucky. You know, Lexington is, you know, an hour and change, maybe more back then because the Mountain Parkway wasn't what it is today. But it was, uh, you know pretty pretty close to home but they were considered to be outsiders but when we look at the the cumberland climbers themselves they have this really extraordinary story of you know very much practicing a clean climbing ethic that was a very big thing for them you know very sort of royal robins approach to things um a lot of their early documents which frank becker was so kind to give me access to show that a big part of their time was really about training people to climb I mean, I would probably guess that there might have been like 10, 12, maybe 15 actual like climbers in the Cumberland climbers. Um, And most of them were training people who were geologists and spelunkers and naturalists and activists and so forth, how to go and do basic climbing. Um, And this was also a time, too, with the Sierra Club that like there was some very specific procedures about like, you know, who could um, uh, climb under what circumstances, who would be allowed to lead climbs and so forth. And that may still be a thing today. I'm not sure. Um, But like there was some very regimented rules and they were following those. So you hear, you know, Ron Stokely mentioned that a lot of his time wasn't even spent climbing in the red. It was basically helping other people learn to climb. They didn't get to spend nearly as much time working uh, on actual routes themselves as they might have liked to. They were also documenting uh, the area and establishing routes. You know, late 69, they establish um, a big run of, you know, very early climbing routes, most of which have been closed, um, largely due to them being in sort of very tourism oriented areas. So it was just safer for everyone that they would be closed. Um, But uh, they established uh, a lot of those early crags. Um, and those very earliest routes. And I think one of the really cool things too, is that they establish a very early history of working with the Forest Service. Uh, there's a very, uh, I will use the word legendary because he truly is a legend, but Don Fig, who worked with the Forest Service here in the Daniel Boone. And um he was getting getting his career started when the Cumberland Climbers were there, and he established, as best I can understand, the earliest uh, rescue organization for the Red. And it was really amazing because, you know, people fall off of cliffs uh, in the Red. That's generally the big problem. People also might be injured. but you occasionally need to be able to rappel down to people to access them and safely extract them. And he realized this was a great chance for him to work with the climbers um, so he actually had anyone who was with the Cumberland climbers to put basically like a little, I think it was an orange dot or a red dot in the back window of their car. And if there was an accident that he required people with climbing gear, he would basically drive the loop through the red river gorge and watch for cars that would have those stickers on them. And at the time it was kind of functional because the crags wouldn't be all that far from the cars, uh, the crags that they were using, but he could basically then get to the climbers and they could be able to come help. Um, You know, it wasn't a super efficient plan. And with time, we see uh, a whole separate rescue organization established that's still around today um, in the Red River Gorge, uh, all because of Don Figg's work. But I always like to think about that with those early days uh, of the Cumberland Climbers, how they were kind of part of the solution. Um, We also see too, with um, especially the work of Frank Becker, when he took over kind of running the Cumberland Climbers as uh, Ron headed out west. He. Was working closely with the Forest Service. There's a lot of letters going back and forth between uh, the Daniel Boone National Forest and himself as the representative of the Cumberland Climbers. You know, trying to sort out early things like closures. Uh, there was a conversation about some areas where they said, "Hey, we would really like to have this area closed uh, during the tourism season because." We're a little worried about tourists trying to lean over the rock and see you. There's also the issue, too, about what they might do to your ropes or throwing things down at you. Um, So, you know, of him trying to find this balance of like, we want to use this public land, but we're also not the only people who want to use this public land. And I think it was really cool to see those like very early origin stories of climbers trying to work with the Forest Service to, you know, and deal with this very unique form of public land use that is rock climbing. Of course, this was all before sport climbing, so it was a little easier back then, right? You know, we're doing all these trad routes and the protection is removable Uh, The impacts are fairly uh, different than with uh, sport climbing, having permanent anchors. You know, there were a handful of permanent anchors already established in the red at that point. Um, And these were a lot of times probably because of the early spelunking history in the red. People wanted to practice their, you know, spelunking abilities above ground where there was sunlight and other people could coach you through it. And so there are a couple of really early... Um, uh, bolts in the rock that might even be from as far back as like the, you know, the 50s. Um, And some of those have actually turned into climbing routes over the years. Uh, Cavers route is a great example of that. A lot of people always think of that as sort of one of the first, if not the first route in the Red River Gorge. I actually argue it's some other routes. I've got a YouTube video up about that on my uh, YouTube channel for those interested. And I talk more about it in the book. Um, but, you know, Caver's route being a great example of that, you know, linking between the spelunking community and, uh, the climbing community. So,
0: yeah, very cool. That's on tower rock. Is that right?
1: Um, yes, that would be a tower rock. There's uh, actually a couple of uh, bolts there, too. Uh, I'm blanking on the name of the route. It might be Africa, but it's on the other side of Tower Rock that also has a weird bolt that was already there uh, in 1974 when they got to the top of it. And it was probably, again, from the, uh, you know, caving community. Uh, There's a couple of other ones, too. I think there's about six cases of those were those early bolts that we don't really know the stories of them. Um, but they were probably, you know, part of that caving community. And one other weird thing that we can't sort of appreciate today about the Red River Gorge, but it was such an isolated location. There was actually two sort of independent climbing communities developing. There was the Cumberland climbers who ended up sort of being the climber that we would think of today. But there was also a lot of folks who would just come out to do rappelling and sort of basic practice skills for their jobs. Um, there was, um, Uh, Otto Mock, I believe was his name, if I remember correctly, um, who was, uh, you know, working with paramedics and firefighters and police officers and so forth in the area who were actually coming out and climbing. And like they had no idea the other climbers were there and the Cumberland climbers had no idea like they were there. So (laughs) it was just like these two sort of independent groups that were developing. Um, I can't imagine a red that's so remote that you just don't see other people. But That used to be the case.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, so interesting. You know, the, the next item I have or yeah, next event I have in this list of important events, you know, I've been, I was kind of thinking of this event that happened in 94 as one of the first kind of case studies that shows or test cases rather that shows the collaboration between climbers and the forest service and the federal land managers. But yeah, I, I kind of stand corrected a little bit. It dates back way before this bolting ban that happened in 1984, um, back in the 60s and 70s with the Cumberland climbers and things. So, once sport climbing really started to become a real thing in the U.S. in the 80s and 90s, and it eventually made its way to, to the Red. Climbing in the Red was initially rooted in traditional climbing, as we know, but you know it's it, it's really developed quickly into uh, these amazing sport routes, and you know, that's what it's really known for today. And yeah. um, as that happened. You know, I think it really caught the attention of the, the Daniel Boone National Forest and the employees there. So this bolting ban in 1994, mm-hmm. what was the impetus for this ban?
1: Yeah, the, I, you know, it's really funny. The The Reds history, I think, largely would have petered out in terms of climbing um, if we hadn't seen the creation of sport climbing, um, because They had pretty much exhausted by the early 80s, um, even with like this, you know, all this new amazing technology that would have been out at the time. um, They pretty much exhausted what could be climbed in the red there. However, is a lot of uh, crags and, you know, facings where. There's no spot you can put protection, but it could be climbed otherwise, you know, it's also one of those things where it's kind of maybe some blank spots that you can't get through, but there's also no cracks that you can basically, you know, put in protection. So sport climbing was perfectly suited for the Red River Gorge in many ways, because it took all these areas that were right beside, you know, known trad climbing areas and just basically expanded them um you know there was a lot of folks who were putting up routes but i think porter Girard is the name that everyone has yep. on their tongue as i'm <laughs> talking about sport climbing mm-hmm. um you know he's uh, well known for his work in many places but i think he had probably come down from the new river gorge area as i recall or maybe it was north carolina and uh we have a lot of things to thank him for. I think in some ways he was probably the the first person to really get climbing popularity or sorry, uh, camping popularity at Miguel's Pizza. Uh, he left a pretty famous note for, um, you know, the Ventura family saying, hey, I'm traveling through the area to look at climbing and I need a place to stay. And of course, that turned into uh, him staying at Miguel's and then other folks staying at Miguel's. And now there's 50 bazillion tents at Miguel's at any given yeah. moment. Uh, year-round even, there's uh, tents up. Um, And, um, you know, he kind of popularized that. But the sport climbing is really what he was known for. He established an insane number of routes in a really short amount of time because he was living in the area and was able to go through and, and do those routes. I mean, he was just putting in all these new routes. And for whatever reasons, the Forest Service somehow didn't know. Um, He didn't, that I can ever find, tell the Forest Service about them. And the Forest Service was also dealing with some other issues with uh, some lawsuits by organizations like Kentucky Heartwood that kind of had them distracted. Um, And so I think that maybe there might have just been some lapses where they weren't able to visit some of these locations that he happened to be at. And, you know, there was probably a day where some random Forest Service person was told, hey, uh, go out and do a routine check on such and such. And they went out there and they found all these weird metal things sticking out of the rocks. And they're like, well, I'm pretty sure those weren't there, you know, 10 years ago. Uh, So we got to figure out what that is. And that ends up leading to the issues with this 94 climbing ban or bolting ban. It basically is like a, a big pause button, was the way I always thought about it with the Forest Service because. You know, sport climbing was such a new thing and it's hard to imagine this, but it was so new that people didn't really even know what it was unless they were in that climbing community and and intimately involved in that climbing community. Uh, You know, there were Forest Service folks that like thought people were putting their fingers into the bolts, you know, where you would like clip in and like they were using those or you maybe you put your feet on them. They didn't really understand like how you even climbed up these, um, much less what they were exactly. So I think that the Forest Service saw that 94 ban as a way to put a pause button on things, figure out exactly what was happening, and then figure out how they were going to manage this kind, this new kind of public land use going forward. And that largely ended up being um, something that was going to have national ramifications. I don't think folks maybe appreciate it at the time, but the entire Forest Service was having a conversation about, you know, what do we do about sport climbing? This is this new use. What are we going to do? And so the Red River Gorge kind of ended up being this important early spot where they could say, well, if you can find a way to do this in the Red River Gorge, then we can use that policy for other places. And if you mm-hmm. can't, then a ban on climbing, pure Period, You know, and going out and stripping all these routes makes total sense. So things were really big for the Red River Gorge to get this right. Um, And, you know, the Red River Gorge Climbers Coalition was really in its very earliest days, it hadn't technically even been founded yet, it pops up officially in 96, as I recall. So in 94. You know, the climbing community has to work with the Forest Service to figure out what they can do. That ends up with uh, the climbing management guide, the memorandum of understanding. And that's exciting because those documents really set a future where they put some very clear limits on what you can and can't do for climbing uh you know guidebook authors like john bernal would argue that those were actually not very clear you know so if feel like you did a trad route and you didn't tell anyone about it was that okay but if you publish the name of it and the location of it is that somehow breaking the rules and you know there was lots of conversations early on about stuff like that but um you know, and ended up establishing some clear limits on what you could and couldn't do, establishing some existing closures. Uh, These were a lot of the tourism closures, too, that had been issues, you know, even in the 1970s. So they weren't necessarily all that big of a deal. Um, But also really establishing that the Forest Service and the climbing community needed to work together going forward. Um, And I think that's really exciting because, you know, in some ways it establishes Um, sort of a pocket, if you will, where something like the Red River Gorge Climbers Coalition can, you know, form to come together to try to represent the climbing community, um, and, you know, try to make things right and make sure that folks can continue to access this amazing climbing area.
0: Yeah, was... So was this happening anywhere else? I think I remember reading something that was going on in Arizona around this time. They were kind of facing the same kind of questions if figuring out what this uh, sport climbing stuff was. I mean, was the red really at the forefront of collaboration between this, the user group and the federal land manager?
1: I I mean, I wouldn't say that they were at the forefront of all cases of like land managements and climbers, but because of the sport climbing issue that was happening there, they kind of were an early test case where if they could figure it out there, we could figure it out other places. You know, I think if things had gone south for the red and they had, um, you know, closed climbing altogether. that probably would have stopped climbing for sports areas across the United States. That's, you know, me based on the data that I've seen and the conversations I've had. um, Others would probably disagree with that. Um, But I feel like this was such an important test case. Um, And we're really lucky that the Forest Service was, you know, kind enough to consider climbing, um, you know, a legitimate use of land. In fact, very early on, I believe it was in the the climbing management guide that they point out climbing is a legitimate use of public lands. And the importance of going out and saying that was huge because it opened the gates for climbing to be okay on other public lands that were owned by the Forest Service and so forth.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, management guides and memorandums of understanding could, you know, I understandably can make people maybe a little squeamish who have not, who haven't been under any kind of formal management in the past. Like, oh God, here comes, here comes the management. We're going to be limited. We're going to lose access and so on and so forth. But man, yeah, this really set a nice precedent. To, to work off of and like you said you know this officially recognized the climbing opportunities in the red river gorge geological area and established the framework for the, the climbers coalition and the forest service to work together towards common goals i mean in the end in the long run it definitely definitely paid off for for both parties i think definitely um you did mention i want to stick one quick uh i had four important events in historical events i want to stick one in there really quick uh the kentucky heartwood lawsuit this watchdog group that was kind of on the forest services case about logging and kind of the ramifications that came out of that because they might have distracted the forest service on all these logging issues and stuff but then they can they pivoted once they got that taken care of, they kind of pivoted into looking archeo- at archaeological sites, and that ended up having a different kind of influence on on the climbing there. Can we do a, a quick minute on the on that lawsuit?
1: Yeah, definitely. You know, it was actually a, a couple of lawsuits dealing with how the Forest Service would um, remove trees in areas where there were protected species, and yeah, I mean we have to remember that the Forest Service one of their important props you know, steps and processes in its early founding was to think about, you know, foresting and on harvesting trees and so forth, and, you know, making that sustainable. it's really funny because Kentucky Hartwood, um, you know, in interviewing their folks from then and now, they really had no idea that they had actually impacted the climbing history. Um, and, you know, some of their folks are climbers. I think that's the really cool thing is the two communities overlap in a few spots, particularly to that early environmental interest from the Cumberland climbers. Um, but what ended up happening was the Forest Service basically suddenly had more resources because they weren't able to do as much timbering. Um, they had more resources to redirect them to other places, and so one of the archaeologists at the time, Cecil Eisen, was very much about the idea that we should, you know, redirect some of these resources to look at these amazing indigenous resources that the Forest Service also has to protect. We have to understand that the Daniel Boone National Forest and the Red River Gorge proper is very much rooted in early indigenous history in this region. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's an important part of what they're charged with protecting. So I, it was a really great time for, um, you know, uh, Cecil as an archaeologist to say, we should take a t- time to use these resources to reconsider some of the things that are happening here. And that ended up, um, you know, raising some concerns, too, because one of the big locations that they were interested in was a place called Military Wall. And Military Wall had a very important indigenous history, and that was something that um, Cecil and the Forest Service were really interested in understanding. The problem was that that, at that point was also a pretty important rock climbing crag uh, for the Red River Gorge. And so it really put them at odds over how they could protect this site and also mitigate the fact that folks were going to be climbing above some of these locations. So
0: yeah, that, that, that segues well into my last historical event, is the archaeological dig at the military wall, because this this event seemed to really shift the, men, the climbers' mentality in land management and ownership. Right? I mean, how how the events that transpired at the military wall shifted this focus towards owning climbing areas versus kind of quote unquote renting them from the U.S. Forest Service and other private landowners. You know, there's um, what's the mantra in the book? It's like if they if we own it, they can't take it something yeah. to that effect mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so how did this yeah how did this pivot um, the land ownership and management moving forward of, and then climbers started buying climbing areas
1: yeah this was a, a very important moment uh, in climbing history for the red and it's also in many ways kind of like sort of the 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 high point for the the story uh, in the book Um You know, at at this point, we have the Climbers Coalition established in 96 by Shannon Stewart Smith and Chris Snyder. Do note that it's not the Chris Snyder that later discovers the mother load. It's a different person, different spelling. Um, But we have at that point uh, an established coalition who is trying to work with the Forest Service. And uh, this actually ends up becoming a magical moment where the Access Fund becomes involved in this story um, in a very big way. Um, You know, the archaeologists contact the coalition, as I understand it. Uh, the archaeologists with the Forest Service, and they say, hey, you know, this military wall crag, you know, there's some stuff there that we uh, think is important. And we think this is an important location historically. And we've got a problem with the fact that there's a whole bunch of climbing happening there. Um, I think when the Forest Service approached the coalition, at that time, a full closure of military wall was on the table. Uh, And that would have been an insane number of routes. I don't Mm -hmm. think that the forest service was all that interested with the bulk of military wall. Uh, They really were interested with that section um, right there uh, where the trail starts. um, uh, When you, when you come up to that crag, the areas to the left and right, they probably weren't all that interested in, even though there's still some really cool historical things happening there as well. So I think at that point, I think at that point that um, the coalition was kind of in a a difficult spot. Shannon Stewart Smith especially was involved with this. The Forest Service um, basically said, you know, for us to be able to keep this open, we're going to have to do an archaeological dig. And as you know, archaeological digs are expensive and public lands don't really have budgets to do these things. But since you're sort of this unique use pattern for the Red River Gorge, Um, We would like to see a situation where the coalition find the funds to pay for this dig. We document what we need to document, and then we'll go from there. And I I think Shannon was in a no-win situation. I very much think that the entire thing could have been closed, and she would have been blamed for it. Um, I think she had to take a gamble that maybe they just closed that area that they seem to be interested in. Um, and we protect the rest of it, um, was, was maybe her hope. And, you yeah. know, I, I'm not speaking for her. I, I would definitely, um, uh, we've, we've talked about the dig at military wall, but, um, I definitely, that's just sort of my perspective on it. Mm-hmm. Um, And at that point, uh, the access fund actually ends up becoming kind of involved in this process. Shannon uh, has been working with the access fund already at this point, but she contacts the access fund and says, you know, hey, here's what we have. Uh, The Forest Service uh, wants to do a dig or they're going to close military wall. Um, What can we do? And the access fund ends up actually paying for that dig, as I understand it. Um, and if the story is true, it it all came about basically in, in a day, Shannon called the access fund, they got it approved same day and send it, uh, and, you know, let her know that the money is basically, uh, there and on the way. Um, and so the forest service may have been a bit surprised about that. That's kind of how the story goes. (laughs) Um, and so, uh, 2001, 2002, they're doing some really exciting work there. I believe the dig was in the fall of 2001. I'd have to double check on that. Um, but they end up doing um, some archaeological work there. And I, I won't go into exactly what was found because, you know, I want you to have a reason to go buy the book, right? If you want to find out what they found, you go buy the book. Um, climbers thought it might be aliens. They thought it might be Jimmy Hoffa. Uh, but I, I'll actually tell you what it is. It's in the book. Um, right. So, anyways. Um <laughs> Well, it wasn't Jimmy Hoffa. But yeah, anyway. yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Spoiler alert.
1: Yeah, that joke totally falls on, like, young faces. They're like, who?
0: Who <laughs> is, who is yeah. Well, I just watched The Irishman recently, so it's, like, fresh yeah. on my mind.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's what folks are always like. Oh, you mean that guy from The Irishman. I'm like, yeah, yeah, there you go. Uh, but anyways, uh, they found something that was extraordinary there, and it's not what folks would think. Um, and so climbers... Um, uh, after that dig show up, I think it was April 2002, um, and that whole area has been fenced off. And it included some really famous routes that were sort of proving routes for folks at the time. Um, you know, there's a really amazing story uh, tossing, talking with Chris Hampton about his experience at the closure at Military Wall. Um, and, uh, you know, it was a really poignant story of how important that area was to climbers. But the Forest Service closed it and they wouldn't tell people why they closed it. They basically, you know, kind of were limited about what they could and could not say about it. Um, they were comfortable with what I had to say in my book and I had them review it in advance. Um, but um, it ended up with a very painful closure. And I think the community itself was angry internally and externally. And I think there was a lot of rage against the Forest Service that they could do this. And if they could close this, what else could they close, you know? Um, And I think there was also some internal um, uh, anger against the coalition as this was somehow their fault. And I think that it was a no-win situation going in. This uh, ends up finding, though, um, a a really important spark um, because we suddenly see this conversation changing from, you know, if we're not going to be able to depend on the fact that we can climb in the red... And by the way, keep in mind, there'd been a couple of other closures that had happened right around the same time on public lands in the red. Um, if we can't depend if the climbing is going to be there, then we have to figure out what we're going to do. And so with 2003, 2004 and on, this thought about um you know if if we own it they can't take it away really takes root and this is where we start getting all these amazing climbing destinations that the the red river gorge is really known for now um you know places like mirror valley pendergrass murray these are not in the red river gorge proper these are privately owned lands in the sense that they're you know owned by someone other than the forest service um But they are areas that are now protected, set aside for climbers. They um, all have access fund uh, environmental easements, which will protect them forever. And it only continues to grow. You know, we've got um, uh, Miller Fork is now protected in Link County. We've got Bald Rock, which includes that motherlode area, as well as the Ventura's owning the area beside the motherlode. Lots of. Really exciting things happening to protect the uh, access to climbing in that area. Um, So I I think that we can kind of see Military Wall as that magical turning point. Um, But it wasn't without problems. Um, you know, one of the things that we found in places like Lee County is that the property records were so horribly outdated that they didn't really know who owned what and Jean Bernard working on trying to understand what would be in Pendergrass Murray found that some spots they thought they were purchasing actually weren't even included. In fact, there's some crags that ended up being lost because of that. Um, likewise, is that too, crack rock. That would be one of them. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, yep. Um, yeah. And and actually, the one that's, I think, right beside it, as I recall, I'm blanking on the name of it. Um, But the uh, also with Mirror Valley, too, I mean, the Webbers were going through and purchasing this beautiful place and it had been made into basically a local cultural trash dump. You know, everybody was just dumping their trash in there and they end up just taking out thousands and thousands and thousands of tons of, you know, everything from old dishwashers to just random trash. I mean, it, it would be extraordinary to have seen that area both then and now because I don't think we would recognize it. And we have to remember, you know, with the Webbers, they were investing their own time and money uh, into a place like that. So they were really taking a gamble um, about it being um, something that was sustainable for the future. Um, of yeah. course, Muir Valley, also another one of those places that's protected for climbers forever. It's not going to change with those environmental uh, easements from the Access Fund, which kudos to the Access Fund for doing that important step. So I think the climbing history today, uh, as we know it, as, as the climbing community, it all roots back to Military Wall and what happened there. Um, you know, who knows if Military Wall hadn't occurred, what would have happened um, I'm sure that there was a conflict at some point coming between uh, climbers and the Forest Service over bolting that was going to continue um, and concerns over overlapping with those indigenous spaces. You know, one thing though that did come out of the military wall that also is sort of maybe underreported is climbers embracing the white haired goldenrod, this random, not especially interesting plant. Um, that's, uh, pretty easy to see if you go to, uh, some of the Red River Gorge arches where they'll actually have fenced off areas that you can see that there's white haired goldenrod, Gray's arch, a great example of that. Um, my daughter got to see white haired goldenrod actually for the first time a couple weekends ago. And she was like, that's not a very interesting plant. And she's right. <laughs> but it is a plant that only grows in one place in the world. And that's the Red River Gorge. And it also loves to be in the drip lines where climbers like to stand. And it's also a plant that just can't handle being stepped on. You trample it, it dies. Uh, climbers began working with the Forest Service to identify where those um, white hair goldenrod places were, to document them. They even closed a couple of locations that weren't particularly of interest to climbers, but nonetheless are now protected. And, you know, the white-haired goldenrod went from being listed as an endangered plant to being proposed for delisting, which is unheard of in Kentucky history. I think it's the only case of that happening for a plant. Uh, I don't know that it's officially been delisted, um, but it was proposed for delisting a couple years back. So I think there has been some success stories. I think it also made the coalition uh, very thoughtful about working with public lands going forward. And I think today the climbing community and the Boone National Forest have probably one of the healthiest relationships between a public and private group uh, that I've seen. They partner together on everything from building bridges to cleaning up and establishing trails, uh, to signing things and making sure people know where they're going rather than using user trails. It's a really amazing partnership and it's only getting better. Um, so I'm really excited to see that even as the bulk of climbing in the Red River Gorge is now moved out of the Red River Gorge proper and into surrounding counties like Lee and Wolf.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Oh boy! All that is so fascinating, and it, yeah, I'm I'm blown away by yeah the level of detail that you have put into this, and how much I have learned from the book. And I hope everyone does take the uh, opportunity to to purchase it and and get educated on all this stuff. It's it's really really interesting and. I, I just need to nod my head towards the private landowners, um, the folks that protected Mirror Valley and other climbers that went into the assessor's office and looked through deeds and plots and and stuff that were so antiquated and so hard to understand. I mean, the work that that took cannot be underestim or uh, you know uh, underestimated. It's uh, a very valiant effort and. The the yeah the scene there would look I think much different without these organizations like the Access Fund or Red River climbers Red River Gorge Climbers Coalition these private landowners I mean the environment and the atmosphere would just be would be wildly different in my opinion
1: there for, for those who may be, uh, you know, kind of listening from outside the red, there's also an extraordinary documentary that was done on Mirror Valley that will let you get to know the Webers, um, but also going to get to see, um, you know, some of the, the things that I talk about in my book, um, and, and, you know, kind of like understand how beautiful this place is. And there's, uh, even some pictures of copperheads cause you know, you can't go to the Red River Gorge <laughs> without seeing a copperhead. So,
0: <laughs> uh, is that on YouTube or Vimeo or some we're on the internet
1: that is on YouTube yeah mm-hmm.
0: okay all right, I'll make sure to link that up and watch it myself. I didn't know that was out there. All right, well, thanks, James. I pre- and I know you're a sociology professor, but I asked you to put your uh, historian hat on there for quite for quite a while. So uh, I really appreciate everything. And I want to move into some more, yeah, some more modern times and the other work you got going on there and the economic impact studies that you've done in the red. You've done two of them, uh, to my understanding, 2015 and 2020. And I watched you also have a YouTube video outline the summary of the 2020 study and you did something at the very beginning of that video which i think could be helpful is just defining what an economic impact study is and what the variables are that you need to consider and like the scope of the scope of the area you know which counties were you including and one really interesting point and important point that you make in there is these economic impact studies are based on new expenditures. This does not include local spending. This is focused on people coming in from outside of the area. So first question here is, what is an economic impact study?
1: I didn't know that was going to be on the test. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Economic impact studies uh, try to understand how a particular activity or group of people spend money in a particular area and their expenditures create particular changes in the economy. Um, Economic impact studies are centrally interested in people who are visiting an area from outside of what we call a study area. You know, for a study area for the red, we picked sort of the five counties in that general area. Um, And if you didn't live in those counties, you would be considered a visitor. And when you come there, whether that's from Lexington or Lander or Bishop or wherever uh, to the Red River Rorge to climb, you spend money. And so our studies try to understand when you spend that money, how does it create changes in the local economy? So some really common examples are, uh, you know, when you go to Miguel's Pizza to buy buy a slice or a whole pie or a whole bunch of other cool food Um, and even lemonade. I found out this last trip, (laughs) but (laughs) when you come in to spend that money, Uh, you know, you're putting new money into the economy. Um, And by doing that, it creates changes. You know, there's certainly the process of you buying that piece of pizza, but then there's the process where now, you know, the Venturas are able to create expenditures within their business that include everything from paying taxes to buying more supplies to paying their workers. Um, And then from there too, the money that's paid into their workers is also creating a wave of expenditures. And the really cool and complicated thing about economic impact stuff, Studies too, is that every time an expenditure occurs because you bought that piece of pizza, a whole new round of economic impact kind of begins. Uh, it gets really complicated because you know when, uh, say, the Venturas buy supplies from somebody in the area, that creates a whole new thing of expenditures where now they have to restock, they have to pay their workers, and so forth. Um, but that's an economic impact study at its heart. You generally need three big components for an economic impact study. You need to establish a study area, which is where the economic spending that you're trying to study will happen. As I mentioned, for the Red River Gorge, it's basically a five-county area. And then the next thing that you need is expenditure patterns. Uh, Common expenditure patterns cover everything from like lodging to food purchases, you know, buying gasoline, buying retail purchases, even buying climbing gear. These are all examples of expenditure patterns. And then on top of that too, we need a visitation estimate. We need to understand how many times those purchases, when they're kind of averaged out, uh, using methodology Established by the Forest Service, um, how those expenditures create changes in the local economy.
0: So what prompted this study and when did uh, when did you start planning for the 2015 one?
1: I think that particular study had originated um, years before uh, I was even in eastern Kentucky with hearing that climbers were thinking about this, but they had not been able to find someone who could do the study um, affordably. Um I won't call won't call any local universities out for being overpriced, uh, but the basically uh, other universities in the area had not been able to 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 do the the um, study in a way that was affordable to the climbing community at the time, um, and so when I arrived uh, quite by coincidence at the Eastern Kentucky University to work here as a professor, I think I was maybe a month in when it just kind of clicked with me. I'm like hey, the Red River Gorge is in this area and um, I could do economic impact studies. Maybe I could help them out. Maybe this would be a great early project for me to to kind of get rooted into this community. Um, and at that point in time, I had been to the Red River Gorge and realized it reminded me uh, quite a bit of, uh, you know, home in eastern Tennessee and uh, this whole area, those parts of Rock Castle County, for example, that remind me so much of East Tennessee, that um, it was a great way to deal with homesickness. Even just being a couple hours away, I could you know, still go up to the Red River Gorge and kind of feel like I'm, I'm with my people. So we started there, uh, worked with the Red River Gorge Climbers Coalition to have a conversation with the Access Fund about what we would need to get that study going. Um, and then uh, we got that one knocked out. As I recall, the original expenditures were around $3.8 million a year, not a ton. But the funny thing that happened from this was that local businesses suddenly reconsidered climbers as climbing client, or as clientele. Um, I'll give you a good example of this. I was presenting the results of the study to the Lee County Tourism Board, which uh, Dieter Brandenburg with the Lee County Tourism Board has been such a great advocate for the climbing community in Betaville. Um, and I think that's so awesome. And and what, how perfect that a town named Betaville would be located right beside climbing, right? <laughs> climbing yeah, Beta. Right. I think that's really neat. <laughs> Anyways, um, but I presented the results to the Lee County Tourism Board, which is where Betaville is located. And I remember seeing these people who had never seen climbers in their life, who had no idea who they were, just looking at me in utter shock and awe when I'm saying you know, climbers are these really educated folks. They've got lots of college degrees or they're working on college degrees. There's tons of them that are engineers and architects and medical physicians, um, you know, rocket scientists, all sorts of things right there that were, you know, things that climbers were doing. And they're just looking at me. And I kind of stopped for a minute. I'm like, you know, I just, I kind of want to step out of the presentation and just say, how many of y'all have ever actually met rock climber and like (laughs) they just look at each other no one raises their hand and i'm like okay so for whatever cool reason there are four climbers that are here um maybe i could just have them stand up and introduce themselves and you know tell us what you do for a living And, you know, one stands up and he's like, well, I'm a professor, Uh, another one's an engineer, you know, computer scientist. It just kind of keeps going from there. And like, you can just see these local residents are shocked because they'd Mm -hmm. heard their whole lives that climbers were quote unquote dirtbags and bad people. And these did not, these people did not match up with this sort of demographic that they had been told. And you have to remember too, that these are the people that are running the cabin industry and things like that in Lee County's uh, tourism district. So it's really funny because that particular event was really um, supposed to last just a couple of hours. And uh, I had a red, uh, sorry, I had a cell phone service uh, carrier at the time that I didn't get any signal, basically, once I got out of Madison County. So my whole time in the Red River Gorge, like, you can't get in touch with me. And I told my wife, I'm like, yeah, I'll probably be home like, you know, 6, 630, not a big deal they wouldn't let us leave because there were so many conversations and all these amazing things happening. And I remember I get in the car and I look down and it's like nine 30 and I'm like, I just hope my wife hasn't called the police and sent out a search party at this point. Um, because it was just amazing. And you know, the, the climbers ended up having these amazing conversations with local residents. And it was cool because, um, you know, a couple of years later, we realized a couple of things that happened. First off, uh, as, um, sort of the context for accepting climbers, the Red River Gorge had changed. We started seeing, you know, local gas stations would always have their little sort of climbing section. There would be guidebooks and there would be, you know, like balm for your hands and, you know, even little things like cliff bars. And, you know, to the climbing community, this was kind of a sign that they're like saying, you know, hey, you're a legitimate form of tourism in the same way that the Forest Service has said you're a legitimate form of public land use. And I think that they were accepted. We also saw the cabin industry starting to sort of say, hey, how do we get in touch with these climbers? And we start to see more and more marketing uh, by them towards the climbing clientele. We even see a rush of people saying, hey, I've got this land, it's got climbing on it, we'd love to sell it to the Climbers Coalition, you know, can you put me in touch? I, I really wish I'd had my real estate license, I probably could have, you know, made 10-15 bucks <laughs> off that. Um, but I just sort of would send them, I'm like, well, you know, here's the, the, here's the you know, community's contact information, this is how you can share that information. Um And it really changed how climbers were being accepted. So in uh, founding uh, our Division for Regional Economic Assessment and Modeling at Eastern Kentucky University um, right around 2020, I sort of said, you know, hey, I think this might be a good time for us to revisit this study, Um, not only because, A, that was one of my earliest studies Um, But, you know, I learned tons of methodologies to make the the studies even more precise and better. Um, And I just felt, B, that there was a ton of change that had happened. Uh, So the Coalition Access Fund uh, was definitely on board with it. And my university was even kind enough to basically cover the cost for this because they felt that it was so important, the Red River Gorge being part of our service region. And so um, we ended up updating the study. And it... a couple of things um first off it gave us a chance to understand those new expenditures Uh, we found that climbers are spending closer to 8.7 million dollars now per year Um, And a lot of that was because of the the cabin industry. Uh, Climbers were using the cabin industry more and it created more expenditures there. But generally, there was just more opportunities for climbers to make purchases. Um, I forgot to mention it, but one of the things that we had out of the previous study, too, is I had told climbers, stop stopping in Lexington and these surrounding towns to buy your groceries. Go to the Red River Gorge and buy your groceries there. And Mm -hmm. it was really funny because we saw the climbing community take that to heart. And so they stopped. Uh, going to places like Lexington on their way in from all around the region to climb, and they would start buying them in places like Betaville. So I thought that was cool. Um, And, you know, and those expenditures are great, too, because they create local wages. Uh, We estimated about $2.6 million in local wages across those five counties and creating 100 plus jobs or supporting 100 plus jobs every year. Um, It was exciting, too, though, because this gave us a chance to get a very legitimate well-thought and methodological plan for visitation. Um, The big problem with climbing on public lands is that climbers generally are not counted. You know, the Forest Service does not count climbers as part of their national visitor use monitoring surveys. Um, And so it's really hard for us to, you know, say there's this many climbers. They can tell you exactly how many cyclists come and how many day hikers and so forth, but they don't keep estimates on climbing. In fact, there's kind of a joke that there is no climbing on Forest Service land because clearly we don't have a count of them, right? <clears throat> so... <laughs> We had to work with um, climbing organizations in the Red River Gorge to estimate visitation. And we chose to use a parking lot methodology where we document every parking lot opportunity that is almost entirely or mostly used by climbers. And then we proceeded to work with climbers and ourselves to kind of get site estimates of, you know, on this particular day, there were this many cars. And, um, you know, again, we focused on areas that we knew it was going to be climbers. Um, otherwise we would sort of partition off, like we think that, you know, 60% of this was actually probably day hikers. And this gave us a situation that we were able to establish uh, a better visitation estimate of over 100,000 climbers come into these five counties in the Red River Gorge area every year. Um, so that's a, a process, too, that we've been able to use in other climbing areas since. Uh, we recently did studies in Bishop. We'll be announcing the results of a study in Lander uh, at the Access Fund Conference coming up in a few weeks. Great. Um, Great. And uh, in the past, we've also done studies in uh, Colorado, Montana, uh, West Virginia, North Carolina. We have studies in Tennessee, Texas, potentially Alabama, and possibly another one in Colorado happening in the, the coming year. So... I'm really glad that the climbing community is letting me do this work. Uh, I'm just deeply honored to, to kind of get to do it because I think it's exciting to do work that is uh, helping make a difference in local economies.
0: Yeah, for sure. We're very grateful that you're willing to do it. Um, I Probably. live on the GMUG in Colorado. Uh, yeah. The Gunnison National Forest is my backyard. So, yeah, I need to dig into that study and, and learn some more about it. And I want to yeah, mm-hmm. get familiar with what kind of impact there is going around in my area. What is then done with these numbers? Like what kind of actionable planning can come out of these studies?
1: I think one of the big things is verifying what climbers kind of already knew. Um, you know, even years before I had done these studies, the climbers were like, you know, we got all these like doctors and lawyers and professors and stuff like that. We seem to be a pretty educated bunch and we have a lot of money that we want to drop in these local areas. Um, and I think the studies helped to verify some of that information as being true rather than just perspective. Um, mm-hmm. but all those studies since then have consistently shown climbers are educated and we're seeing that in other studies, uh, from other folks as well. So I, I think that's one really great thing. At the local level, this also helps to change perspectives. You know, I gave the example of Lee County, but it helps to present people with the idea that climbers um, are actually pretty exciting tourists that you would want to have in the area. They're interested in spending local. They're interested in supporting local wages. Um, You know, they do want to climb. And if you make climbing accessible, then they're going to do that. Um, you know, these studies help identify some of the loops um, that we have to close to help um, some of these like sort of rural transitional economies like the Red River Gorges. Um, you know, instead of spending money in Lexington for groceries, let's have you go to Betaville or some of these other places or, you know, even stop in like, you know, Powell County on your way down the Mountain Parkway uh, into the Red River Gorge and get groceries there Uh, Lexington is a great place, but it doesn't really need your money like Powell County does. So I think that's good. And at the local government level too, it's been fun to see how these studies, you know, show that recreation can be a great alternative to some of the other things that's out there. It shows with climbing that it's especially attractive because, Um, You know, first off, we know how to mitigate environmental impacts with climbing quite well. Um, We can't say that about extractive industries, for example. Um, I can let 10,000 climbers come into a particular crag every year, and it's not really going to change the face of that crag all that much because we can make the pads sustainable. We can make it so that people aren't using user trails and they're following a very specific path up. Um, I can't say the same for something like mountaintop removal, not taking a perspective on that being good or bad, but I'm just saying we do see that climbers, you can invite them into places and, you know, the changes are going to be far, far less than we would see. It also doesn't Mm -hmm. cost anything. We open the areas to climbers, they come in, they spend money. Um, so, I mean, those are some of the things we've also seen too, that, um, access fund and local climbing coalitions have also used these studies to kind of help. Um, you know, politics for supporting climbing access across the United States. Um, You know, the economic impact studies didn't necessarily have anything to do with like conversations over barriers, bears ears, but it, you know, is something that's kind of part of that process of saying, you know, hey, climber expenditures are important. And this is a really educated, great demographic, and we can take care of these places. You know, we really want to um, have access to, uh, you know, places like that. So those are just some of the things.
0: We kind of touched on extraction and transition economies and things, and you know the the tourist the tourist based economy isn't is not squeaky clean. We're not perfect, and there are perhaps you know some downsides to transitioning to a tour-based tourist-based economy you know around me in the town of Crested Butte which is a ski town about uh, 25 minutes away from my house you know it was a coal mining town at at one point and then the ski area got developed in the 60s and so on and you know we've seen that now in more recent times that boy like the a ski town is is like a real estate town, you know, things do get more expensive as more money comes in, you know, housing gets way more expensive, property taxes go up and, and, and so on and so forth. So are you seeing, is there a fear of that in these areas that, you know, there's some, maybe some form of gentrification that could happen and perhaps push locals out because things get, do get too expensive moving into a tourist based economy. Are there any talks around that?
1: Um, Yeah, rural gentrification is a really big concern for me. And it's something that um, is part of the research that I'm I'm thinking about going forward. Um, It's something that hasn't been examined um, thoroughly enough in the outdoor recreation industry, um, understanding Uh, why it is that outdoor recreation users get so attached to these areas that they would uproot their entire lives to move there. You know, we've had several studies where we've asked um, folks who did live inside the study area, did you move here because of the outdoor recreation opportunities available there? And the overwhelming answer is like, yes. And -hmm. then the pandemic happened and a whole bunch of workers with very mobile jobs suddenly realized that you can do data analysis from anywhere on the planet. So, Instead of paying all this money to live in San Francisco, why don't I go to eastern Kentucky where the cost of living is very low and land is comparatively cheap? Um, And a lot of folks did that. Um, You know, in fact, uh, I think one of the things that we have seen is an increase in the number of climbers living in places like Betaville. You know, on one side, this is desirable. I talk about this in my book that uh, used to drive through Lee County, Powell County, Wolf and so forth. You would see abandoned houses all over the place. Um, climbers saw those as well. And when they realized that it was feasible, that they could relocate, um, especially with the pandemic, a lot of those houses got purchased. So on one end, they're creating tax base that wasn't there before with these abandoned properties and they're creating a a new house and a new structure. And in some cases, even new businesses, you know, was creating new economic expenditures as a result of that. Um, but you know, collectively, that will create some changes. Is it going to be like it was in Colorado? I don't know. Um, I think that's a really legitimate question. Rural gentrification is also something that takes time. Um, You know, we would have to study Colorado's history to understand exactly how long that process was happening. But I remember, you know, even being as a young person, uh, you know, kind of hearing that sort of this stuff was happening in Colorado. Um, So I I think that it is something that is... um, Uh, Unfortunately, something that may happen in the future. And it's something that I am very sensitive about. Uh, I am Appalachian. Um, As I mentioned early on, my family is from Gatlinburg Pigeon Forge area. And um, my cousin Dolly is an extraordinary person, but um, she's also been part of, you know, her own form of sort of rural gentrification, I guess, in that area by accident, because there used to be lots of people living in places, you know, like Sevierville and Pigeon Forge, and a lot of them are being sort of um, priced out of these areas and having to relocate. Um, And similarly, too, there's been some conversations about to what degree that wealth kind of gets to these other areas. You know, you can be in... um, Uh, The Pigeon Forge area and, you know, check out New Era Road, I believe was the name where you kind of go behind all the tourism development and you really see what Appalachia used to look like. I haven't been on that road in 10 years, so there's probably like, you know, a a Belk Super Outlet or something like that on it now and a a NASCAR themed park, but it's um, very much a, a thing that can happen. I don't yeah. think the Red River Gorge yeah. is going to turn into Dollywood. I want to be very clear. We don't have mm-hmm. the right things for us to be the next Gatlinburg and so forth, which is the the comparison people always like to do. But in my last chapter, I do talk about the fact that there's a destination resort that, as far as I can tell, is going to happen. It's going to be probably in the area of Natural Bridge. I'm not 100% sure on that, that they've locked in a location. Um, and I think that's going to have some changes. I don't think it's going yeah. to impact climbers all that much, though. I think climbers yeah. are already climbing in Lee County and Wolf County and the Red River Gorge is sort of um, sort of secondary to their interests in many ways you know if you can go climb at the the mother loader at mirror Valley um, going through the process of getting into the Red River gorge trying to find a parking space and so forth isn't quite as attractive as it used to be so I don't know that's going to impact climbers a lot but um, it's going to be something for locals to think about and we probably yep. won't know the impacts for you know a good 10, 15 years. So sure, sure.
0: Yeah, a little bit more time needs to pass before we really know the impacts of it. Um, yeah. Well, besides the tourist-based economy, you know, just more people in one area leads to you know on the ground impacts um, on trails and vegetation and other erosion uh, and ecological-related things. Um, and this could be a good segue into the final topic here. Do you still do you still have time to, to keep rolling here? Oh, I sure do. Okay, great. Well, I, w- I definitely wanted to touch on uh, just one more topic. You know, I know you wanted to touch on uh, Leave No Trace as it applies specifically to climbers. And you did do some other studies. I mean, you're just kind of a, a study maniac here. I love it. Uh, economic studies and now these uh, Leave No Trace studies. And you did one in the New River Gorge in West Virginia, which yeah. I'd be interested in diving into and hearing some more about that. So yeah, what was, uh, what prompted that and when did that start?
1: you know i'm a eagle scout i work as a scout leader for my daughter's troop and um i love the idea of promoting an outdoor ethic i think one of the greatest things in my childhood was the fact that um and it's a little scary because it was kind of dangerous but my parents just kind of let me run wild in the woods and hey um, me too (laughs) yeah we turned out okay right (laughs) right exactly Um, it was a great experience because, um, you know, um, I got to experience a lot of cool things out there. Sometimes I hurt myself and figured out what my limitations were. (laughs) Um, but, um, I think that it was such an important part of my identity. And so even as I was doing all this economic impact stuff, people were like, Yeah, but what about the environmental impacts? And I'm like, that's fair. You know, climbers have some very specific ways that they impact the ground, some very specific ways you're impacting the rock that is unlike anyone else. I mean, there's no other user group that is scraping lichen, for example, you know, off of of a rock face. Um, yeah. And so climbing presents some useful, I'm sorry, some very specific rather uh, public lands, um, environmental impacts that have to be thought about. And we also see, too, in the Red's history and in many other places, climbers have learned the hard way that if you can't take care of an area, people will close it. Um, there have been some big limitations that happened in the Red on being able to use certain areas simply because people wouldn't follow basic outdoor ethic rules that are common sense, you know, like don't take a poop right there in the parking lot. There's a bathroom for that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, really simple things that that uh, climbers, unfortunately, uh, during that early sport climbing era were kind of violating. Um, not to limit it to that area, it's it's um, uh, applies to all eras. But I think that it's just one of those things that climbers have to keep in mind. If we're going to use these areas, we have to minimize our impacts. You know, uh, folks like the Coalition. You mentioned a couple of Red River Gorge folks early on that are doing great work to limit impacts. Um, they're doing that very practical stuff of you know building everything from fences to you know solid. Um, you know, climbing platforms and stuff like that to prevent erosion, stuff like that. I wanted to think about the actual behaviors of climbers when they were out there. Um, This started with a couple of studies with the 2015 study we did in the Red River Gorge, looking at if climbers who knew more about Leave No Trace would say that their behaviors matched what they knew. And generally, we found that there was a linear relationship there. If you knew more about Leave No Trace policies um, then you followed them. And of course this was, you know, sort of self measured. So we didn't have the ability to go out and watch that they actually did these things, but it kind of gave some early examples that, you know, maybe climbers do no, leave no trace. Maybe there's something here. Um, some later studies that I did with the new river gorge, and then recently with the red river gorge followed up on ideas, like what are some of these demographics that might shape what you know. And um, this was kind of a build on some of the earlier studies from the red where we found that there was a particular demographic that kind of shaped the results. And it was sort of like a side finding that we didn't even really spend much time on. Um, But when we looked at trying to understand Leave No Trace in the New River Gorge, well, first off, a couple of things came up. The first thing is that we didn't have a really great Leave No Trace measure that applied to climbing. Uh, we used um, the uh, l AIM, which I hope I get this right, the Leave No Trace Attitudinal Inventory Measure. Apologize to Wade Vegas if I got that name wrong. Uh, <laughs> but uh, he's probably like, oh, you got it wrong. Anyways, Um <laughs> But with uh, that, it basically applied to like you know hiking and camping. And when climbers would fill right. out that survey, they'd be like, "Well, you know, we don't put down tents. we We stay at Miguel's, you know, or we're going to like Lago Linda's, you know, and staying in an RV. we're not we're not putting down tents at the crag. We don't start fires. And so the scale didn't really apply. So um I worked with my my team here at the Division Regional Economic Assessment and Modeling and some of my L and T colleagues like Brian Clark, Mike Bradley, and so forth, Ryan Sharp, to develop um, a Leave No Trace scale that specifically applied to climbing and you know, true to name, we called it the leave no trace rock climbing measure because we couldn't think of anything more creative. Um, <laughs> but this measure is a 28 item list that basically asks climbers to react to how appropriate a particular behavior is. And, you know, there's some things like using user trails, um, you know, like carpooling to the crag. These are things that aren't necessarily applicable only to climbing. But then there's some really specific things, you know, like removing chalk when you're done, limiting your chalk use. Do you cut that tree down that's in your swing line? What are you doing Doing with the crag dogs, um, and certainly things too like what do you do when you gotta go to the bathroom at the crag? So this particular measure we put into tray been uh, in, put into play with the New River Gorges Economic Impact Study that we did, and uh, we got a really great sample to understand uh, that first off, climbers score really well overall on this LNT RCM. They know how to limit their impacts. But some of the really exciting things that we found is that there's some interesting demographic stuff happening. For example, we were measuring sex in the survey, um, and we examined that females were scoring higher than everybody else in some really big problem areas. And we didn't really know what to do with that because that was kind of a really unexpected finding you know for me i argue that probably inclusivity efforts across the united states um are creating a situation where maybe these female climbers are getting newer access to leave no trace information that's updated instead of like what maybe you learned in like the 1980s or whatever before lnt was even really like a full on thing and I think that might be shaping some of those results. Um, we've since branched that out to a study in the Red River Gorge that um, examined these same ideas using the LNT rock climbing measure. But we also tried to understand some of the other things that you maybe have done in the past or some particulars like sources of leave no trace knowledge to see how those might shape what you knew. And a couple of cool things fa- fell out there. First off, we replicated the result on females um, scoring higher on a lot of the problem areas. Second, for Access Fund, we Found that the climbers' pact basically increases one's LNT knowledge. If you've signed the climbers' pact, you scored higher on the LNT RCM. Mm. So, and there was a couple of other findings that that particular study is under review right now, and hopefully should be published in the spring. And I'll be sure to share that with the Access Fund when it comes through. Um, I think one of my favorite things about developing this LNT RCM, though, is the applied element of it. It helps local crags and climbers figure out what they're doing wrong. Um, In fact, if there's an LCO out there who's interested in having my team do the LNT RCM for your CRAG, We can gladly do that online. In fact, we can do it for free um, through the Access Fund's uh, support, and I appreciate the work that they've done uh, to support our work, Um, but we can do that to help your crag understand where the problems are and so forth. And this is also helping us get data now at the national level because we're getting all these different places turning in data, and we can kind of start to see what climbers across the United States know about climbing. Um, so I think that was a really exciting thing. It also helps us though, identify areas that are problems. Um, you know, in fact, some of the things that stand out to me, uh, I would really love to kind of take this moment to tell climbers, you really should go ahead and just start packing out your toilet paper everywhere. And if you're living or you're climbing rather in really arid places that are dry, you need to use those, uh, what are they called? Wag bags, right. And pack out your feces as well. Um, it's, it, it's. Toilet paper is one of those things that technically can biodegrade, but what we have found consistently across studies is climbers have no idea if they should or shouldn't bury, and it doesn't matter where the location is. They don't know what they should do with the toilet paper. So I'm here to tell you, climbers, pack out your toilet paper. I know it's gross, but I'm a hiker and I do that. You put it in a plastic bag, it'll be fine. Um, second <laughs> I want to tell climbers you need to educate yourself um, you know if you love these areas so much and you want to have access to them and you want to make sure that climbing is going to continue there you need to take the moment to update your leave no trace knowledge when was the last time you updated your leave no trace certificate when was the last time you went to the access funds website and learned about signing the climbers pack and what you can do to minimize your impacts I'm here to tell you if you were trained back in like the 70s and 80s and 90s a lot of that stuff has changed we don't throw out apple cores, and orange peels out anymore. We pack those out. In fact, packing out things is basically the best advice you can always get. If you bring it in, it should come out with you. Um, I think one other thing, too, is that um, we really just need to be thoughtful Um, Not only about individuals as climbers, how we practice Leave No Trace, but we need to find those opportunities to educate other climbers. One of the findings that we had in our Red River Gorge study that's under review is that climbers are willing to take Leave No Trace knowledge from other climbers. Now, that doesn't mean you get up in their face and you scream at them. This is where you have a very careful conversation of, you know, hey, in the future, like if you could do it this way, that would be actually better because it'll help minimize your impacts. Um, again, this is something that I've seen a lot of the Leave No Trace folks with uh, Access Fund that are going around to the different crags have actually worked through. There's some great videos about like, how do you have a conversation with a person about the fact that we shouldn't throw out those orange peels that we, you know, need to be packing out our toilet paper and so forth, That we need to be going farther from the crag to take a pee. Um, I think that's the, one of the really valuable things is that climbers are willing to listen to other climbers. We found that they aren't willing to listen to, you know, like a public land person coming in and trying to tell this information, but they will listen to a climber. So let's test that idea. Let's talk with other climbers and let's work together to minimize our impacts.
0: Yeah. Oh boy. I want to just end it right there because it was such a wonderful punchline and your recommendations going forward. But I do have a couple of, couple more follow-up questions. Um, just like I asked with the economic impact studies and actionable planning that can come out of them, um, has has like the New River Gorge uh, Alliance of Climbers, I think is the name of the LCO there, have they been able to create new educational uh educational items or educational opportunities with this new information that they have learned to give to the climbers visiting there because they also get like thousands of climbers there every year have yeah, they been able to a, do specific things with that
1: you know the the information is so new that we really haven't had the chance to do that and okay. testing out that lnt rcm there was such a great opportunity it also took us um A very long time to get that particular paper through the peer uh, review process. Um, I think there is um, definitely some things, though, to to have conversations about uh, this with all LCOs. Um, And, you know, NRAC is already doing such great work. I appreciate all the things that Um, You know, Gene and everybody up there is doing. Um, So, you know, they, they may not be where we have to spend our attention. But I think this is where, again, if there's LCOs out there that are having issues and they don't know what to do, this might be a great way for us to come in and statistically establish some of these ideas Give them some baseline information about, you know, compared to these other crags, these seem to be have some problems that you're having. And then, you know, I don't know, maybe this is like a best practices opportunity for Access Fund to, you know, organize their materials and give uh, LCOs um, you know, a best practices list. Uh, I, am always one of those people that like, I support access fund, but I also sort of call them out. I want you to do even more (laughs) because y'all are amazing. And and I know that you can pull this off somehow. Uh, you know, you don't let the climbing community down. You're such a great advocate. So we want to get, um, you know, as much advocacy as we can. And, and I think, uh, access fund establishing some best practices will definitely help, uh, local climbing organizations. And likewise too, you know, if you're the president of an LCO, I mean, read through my book, you're going to see how bad things can go. If you need to hear, you know, worst case scenarios, I provide them in the book. Um, you know, the LNT issues in the, the Red River Gorge were pretty bad in places. Um, Mm -hmm. today, I think it's really great that you can go to climbing areas and, you know, other than there's always going to be soil compaction at the base, which is something that again can be dealt with, with everything from platforms to, you know, establishing the trails better, which, you know, uh, uh, Curtis and Audrey with the coalition are doing and Ashley before them as well. Um, You don't see things like the toilet paper flowers that you see in day hiking areas. You know, you don't see things like people abandoning their entire backpack every once in a while, somebody forgets a climbing shoe. And I get that. And somebody packs it out and you leave it somewhere that they can pick it up, you know, but we don't see people just like abandoning gear. We don't see people leaving tons of trash. And I remember I was uh, on a trip uh, in the Daniel Boone National Forest. And uh, actually it was when Brian Clark and I were collecting surveys and we came across these two people who were very near um, a climbing crag. And we're doing some pretty grotesque LNT violations in the way that they started a campfire right against a tree. And mm-hmm. I remember like, I almost felt like I had to pull Brian off him because Brian's a leave no trace trainer. And I could just like see him seething when he saw it, but <laughs> he walked up, he's like, are y'all climbers? And they're like, Oh no, no, we're just day hiking. he's like, Oh, thank God. And so <laughs> we, uh, we documented it. We let the forest service know about it. We're like, Hey, these are day hikers. Um, you know, Brian did his best to educate him about the fact that, you know, by putting that fire there, they would pretty much doomed that tree. And, you know, we're causing all sorts of other issues. Um, but, you know, it's little things like that. I just appreciate the climbing community cares about Leave No Trace. They're quick to police others, too. Um, but there's always room for learning more. Um, you know, there's little things like figuring out that we need to pack out stuff like Apple cores that we still can work on um, thinking about too, where you're using the bathroom in relation to water and so forth. You know, there's this always room for growth. There's always uh, room for continuous improvement on stuff like this. And so I'm really hoping that, um, In some ways, as an applied sociologist, that this particular study is going to be something that can help create a lot of positive changes for other places. And I will note, too, for LCOs that are interested, uh, this gives a great chance for my students to be involved in data collection, to learn how these things work, to help with report writing and statistical analysis, gives me a chance to teach them. So, you know, do them a favor. Let us do a study for you.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. There you go. That's a great plug, and it's good to know that these resources are out there. So if you're if you're in a jam and don't know how to proceed, like we can, we have something to direct them to, and that's you, your students, your knowledge, your, and in your studies here to to help them out. So I will, um, I'll be sure to share that with folks. Um, where can where can folks find that?
1: Um, Actually, it's just easy to reach out and find me uh, or just send me an email. That's the easiest thing. I'll just give you my email. It's james.maples at eku.edu. Or if you Google, Google, <laughs> there we go. Google James Maple's climbing studies. I'll pop up somewhere. There'll probably be a picture of me when I had my beard too, but I've I've shaved my beard off since then. So, <laughs> yeah,
0: you know, I I wanted to mention if you still have that epic beard going right now.
1: <laughs> you know, it was getting a little hot. Uh, it was. Yeah. Uh, I had that one for about five years, and uh, my daughter had actually never seen me without a beard. And for Halloween, so funny. oh yeah, she didn't even like know what I looked like under there. And uh, and I'd kind of honestly had forgotten and so for Halloween yeah. we were going to go as the band Steam Powered Giraffe who's awesome if you never heard them. check them out on YouTube um, and uh, that involved me shaving my beard to, to look like one of the, the musicians so I shaved my beard it freaked her out because she was like you look weird put it back on and I'm like well I kind of can't but yeah, it's been it nice to be while. beard-free. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got some uh, sort of like uh, Wolverine sideburns in the meantime just to, to make me feel like yeah. i got a beard, so. <laughs>
0: well, yeah, I've, I've had one myself, uh, not as long as yours, but I've had one myself for, geez, almost 10 years now, so I'm kind of forgetting <laughs> what I look like under there as well. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely relatable. Yeah. Um all right, James. Well, oh boy. Yeah, we've been going for just shy of two hours. I think we had a new record on, um, <laughs> on, an, on an episode here. I love it. Uh, thank you so, so much for, for sitting down and chatting this morning. I really look forward to seeing your presentation here and chatting in a couple of weeks and, and meeting you in person and shaking hands and, and uh, maybe having a beverage at one point. So yeah, I'm, I'm so glad to have you on our side. Uh, thank you so much.
1: Oh, I'm just happy to be part of it. You know, thanks to everybody with the Access Fund or the work you do. It is so critical and so important. And I want to say thanks, too, to all these folks working in the public lands. Uh, you know, their singular purpose in life is trying to keep these areas open so that we can recreate on them. So next time you see your public land folks, give them a high five and a pat on the back and say, hey, we appreciate you. And, um, you know, take care of these lands because, man, these places are beautiful, but it's on us. Uh, we got to make sure to take care of them.
0: All right, thanks everyone for tuning in. I I really hope you all enjoy this show as much as I enjoy making it. It's a lot of fun putting this together each month for you all to tune in and listen to. So thanks so much for listening. Before you depart, I wanna run a few things by you. I started the show to bolster the efforts that these advocates do year after year, and of course, to support the mission of Access Fund. So I'd like to ask you to either donate or better yet, become a member of Access Fund. Your support and membership goes a long way to help them with their mission of conserving, stewarding, and advocating for climbing. There are varying levels that you you can become a member at, but you can get started for as low as 20 bucks a year, and after that, you can reap all kinds of awesome benefits with first getting a free t-shirt and getting amazing discounts on some of the best climbing products out there. It's all listed on Access Fund's website, accessfund.org, so check it out. If you're a rock climber, please consider becoming a member of Access Fund. Second, if you want to do me a huge solid, please subscribe to the show and leave a glowing review and comment on Apple Podcasts. After that, jump on those social media channels and share it with your friends. It goes a long, long way, and I'd greatly appreciate if you helped me out with that one. So thanks again for listening. I really appreciate it, and I'll catch you all next time.